Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the future of facts in journalism. Seems like a strange question because facts are what we do in reporting in journalism, but the climate that we're in and the role of disinformation has prompted a lot of people to question what the role of facts is, how we use or should use facts, or whether, in fact, we should rethink how we tell stories. And I'm joined by two people who know an incredible amount about this. Emily Bell is the director of the Tau Center at Columbia. Hello, Emily. Hey, hello, Kyle. And Whitney Phillips is joining us remotely from Syracuse, where she's an assistant professor. Hello. Hi, thank you so much. So both Emily and Whitney have amazingly great pieces in the latest print issue of CJR, which is all about disinformation. It's a beautiful magazine, isn't it, Emily? Have you seen it? I can, it's in front of you. I can see it right now. It looks gorgeous. <laughs> I've only really read it online, however. It reads very well as well, I have yes. to say. Emily, let's start with you. You sort of tackle this issue from the perspective of fact-checking. Right. And and one, what role fact-checking has in clearing up confusion, mm. but also which I thought I thought one of the more interesting ideas that you raise is the notion that journalism is sort of outsourced fact-checking to platforms and other people who don't care so much about journalism. Right. That's So So that may be the impression, in which case I should have written it a little bit more clearly. But, um, Let's just go with that. Yeah, so, 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 so this idea, um, you know, there are three waves of American fact-checking. So be really clear about this. There are two types of debate at the moment about sort of fact-checking. First of all, in the rest of the world, it's a slightly different lens on it. Um, because we're often talking about countries which doesn't have any journalism or where journalism is an imprisonable offence and there isn't effectively media. So sort of emerging kind of information economies, fact-checking is incredibly valuable because that difference between this is right, this is wrong sort of creates a a practice. In America, it was really a reform movement for Mm. journalism and this is external fact-checking. This is not like the fact-checker who takes your copy and, indeed, fact-checks my piece on fact-checking. Which, by the way, is happening less and less. Fewer news outlets actually have that function. It's a shock and a privilege to deal with an actual fact-checker internally. But it's now being an external process, which some newsrooms um, are doing uh, themselves. Some are blending it with their reporting. Um, There are units and and, and organizations like PolitiFact, which started as a reform movement for journalism, which said we don't like the way journalism has just become, particularly political journalism, has become stenograph, you know, like stenography. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is pursue politicians to actually kind of correct claims. And then we're in the sort of third wave at the moment in a way way which is, is, is the social web where uh, talking to, uh, for the piece I was talking to Angie um, Holan at the uh, PolitiFact, and she said, you know, really the share button <clears throat> on mobile for Facebook, which happened in 2012, was a big moment where everything suddenly changed and you suddenly had far more incoming kind of dubious claims, etc. So this is the sort of the beginning of that sort of spread of misinformation. And after the 2016 election in America, um, one of the ways that... Facebook, having initially said this was not a problem, there's a tiny amount of material on our platform is problematic, then pivoted, as they want to do, to saying it is actually problematic. And how we're going to do it is we're going to address it by paying external fact-checkers mm. to address the, the issues. Now, 
that's created a kind of a mini boom. So, you know, there is Facebook money, not a huge amount of it, but there's Facebook money that goes to organisations that check facts. And I saw organisations that make between, you know, some, sometimes for a small organisation like Snopes, which is no longer in the network, made $400,000 one year mm-hmm. from that. The issue really is with its relationship with journalism is, as you say, kind of like, is some of this now moving out of the newsroom? Is is kind of like the idea of reporting organisations and fact-checking organisations? Are those two things growing together or apart? Now, you know, kind of part of this is that that Facebook and the independent fact-checking network will allow you to be part of the network if you are part of a newsroom, but there are certain conditions. So you have to not be what they call under the same media house as opinion and activism. So it's kind of dancing on a head of a pin here. Yeah, but, what does but that it, mean for the New York Times op-ed section? Well, so what it means for the New York Times op-ed section and Glenn Kessler, actually, the Washington Post, is they can be part of the network because op-ed is separate. Uh-huh. However, of course, this is really hard to prove if you're a digital outlet. And famously, the Daily Caller applied to be part of the network, were turned down, reapplied, having adjusted the fact they now call their um, fact-checking section something completely different. Um, and then were admitted, and and Facebook were keen to have fact checkers who were not from the left. So to some extent, this is all not not sort of broadly seen as mainstream, also kind of represented on the right. And this kind of brings up the problem with fact checking, which is, I think platforms like it and they embrace it and they talk about it a lot because it's a binary true or false and actually because mm. it feeds the right kind of training data to the algorithms, which help them down rate down down weight um, problematic stories which I think is actually working on one level so, so so one thing to say is it's definitely having some effect of downweighting those stories but of course you know the level at which this is most visible Nancy Pelosi's video etc there are all sorts of other con- contextual kind of issues around that like you know just because it's factually incorrect do you take it down Facebook were clearly politically scared about that and left it up with a fact check on the video. But as we all know, this isn't a binary question. Right. No, right? we all know this. Yeah. You begin with a fake premise, which is facts are either right or wrong, yes mm. or no, black or white, and that's right. just not true. Well, I, d- I mean, there are certain things where we can say, did this happen on this date? Is polling Correct. is polling on in Britain on the 13th of December or the 12th? So those things, I think... But those aren't in- the things that we fight about. No, they're not the things that we fight about, but they are the things that actually have a substantial effect on um, things like voter suppression. You right. know, so, so, so to not tackle them is actually negligent. And I think the fact-checking does a, does a good job of that. I mean, you know, kind of the professional fact-checking organisations that have been doing it for a long time are incredibly thoughtful about this. And yeah. they really kind of understand what's possible and what's not, what's not possible. So I wouldn't say it, but, but I think this idea that it's... Um, I think this idea that... I'm not saying it's kind of done at the expense necessarily of reporting organisations, but this somehow a sort of an impression has built up that fact checking is going to solve the 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 the, the largest sort of swathe of problematic content on platforms, and and it and it probably isn't because that content is not fact based yeah. often, yeah. and sometimes when it is, the facts themselves are correct. Just the framing, the context, the way that they are used is misleading. So this is a good segue to talk to Whitney about what what is the role of facts in a in a um, in an information ecosystem, Whitney, that you write in your piece for us is is polluted, right? It's polluted with bad information. And 
can facts sort of serve as a disinfectant or whatever the analogy is against that pollution? Yeah, I mean, so I, I look at the issue um, ecologically. So not just thinking about the particular, a particular lie or a particular story that, that is problematic, but rather sort of thinking about the whole media ecology. And our media ecology currently is overrun by polluted information. And so it's sort of like if you're talking about a beach, you don't talk about a single square foot of sand that's polluted. If the, if the space is polluted, it's polluted, and our, and our media ecosystem is. And so thinking about, well, how do, how do facts clear up or do they clear up um, that sort of pervasive pollution? And there's an assumption that when confronted with a conspiracy theory or a hoax or a lie or anything um, that would qualify as mis- or disinformation, the best way to respond to it is to say what's true, is to, is to check facts in sort of the more broad sense of the term, a kind of debunking or a pushback against something that is false. And on one hand, Facts are absolutely critical to a functioning democracy, so it's certainly not the case. I'm certainly not arguing that facts don't matter. Facts matter critically. It's just that in our network environment, the various affordances of social media and technologies generally, what it does is it it means that those facts often don't behave in ways that we might expect them to or want them to, that fact, the act of fact-checking or debunking false information can backfire and actually send even more pollution running downstream than would have existed without the fact-check. And that also relates to not just, you know, the network limitations and complications, but also the way that people arrive at conclusions, that facts are often not why people believe the things that they believe. And so facts don't ultimately correct those beliefs because that's not how people got to them in the first place. So there are lots of complicating factors when thinking about facts that just make them less of an immediate obvious corrective than we would want them to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, your description of that is, is so in line with what I see in the world every day where, you know, where you have it's happening in this impeachment process right now where one side is saying one thing that's true, one side is saying another thing that's not true and people are believing what they choose to believe and the facts of the case seem less relevant. I mean, one thing, do you, Whitney, do you think that most reporters, especially reporters working around politics understand this and are trying to grapple with it, or are they still dealing with an, a, a model in which they assume that the facts will rescue them? I mean, I think I don't think that that assumption is restricted to journalists. Um, journalists are sort of on the front lines in some important ways because they're the ones who communicate the most facts. That's the purpose of their job. But I think that average citizens, too, often assume if you have a falsehood, you say a fact, and then the falsehood goes away. And that's simply not, I mean, and part of that is an assumption about the marketplace of ideas, right? There's already an assumption that rationality wins the day, and <laughs> historically that has not been the case. So it's not, it's not that journalists are somehow deficient in their thinking. They're in line with sort of broader cultural assumptions. Um, it's just that those cultural assumptions don't always fully take into account the process of amplification and how the effort to correct a falsehood can actually create more falsehood, particularly when, you know, certain segments of an audience, unintended audiences, 
can look at the debunk or fact check and then come away more convinced that the falsehood is true. So that's particularly salient when thinking about impeachment. When the New York Times reports something about how Ukraine was not responsible for <laughs> election interference, that that is, that is not true, if you, by default, culturally believe that the New York Times is fake news, that reporting is only going to confirm your belief about actually there is a deeper conspiracy theory and the New York Times is deep state adjacent. And so anything they say proves the opposite. And, and so when a reporter is, especially a political reporter, is reporting the facts, it can contribute to sort of a superstorm of pollution. Folks who communicate information on the Internet often like to stand outside of the stories and assume that they can comment on those stories separate from the story itself. But that is simply not how things work in a polluted information landscape. Even when you are saying something true, it can move downstream in unpredictable ways and embolden audiences that you weren't even thinking about. Yeah, I think it's kind of what the, the Whitney's piece and what you were saying there, just, just that, Whitney, is, is really interesting to me as a, as a former reporter and editor and now somebody who studies this stuff, that that connection between sort of reporting and amplification and the, pro, and the problematic aspect of the entire environment, I think is tied in some way to this. So, so one of the things that kind of bugged me, if you like, about fact-checking was that it clearly works on some level. But there is also a sort of a technology, a sort of techno-positive agenda here, which says we can fix this. But the, but the kind of the mechanisms for fixing it are very binary. Um, a lot of them involve thinking about their own sort of internal kind of platforms and systems, and, and it feels to me like that it's it's kind of drowned out. And, and, and to some extent, the whole, I would say, disinformation business has drowned out perhaps what we need to get to, which is a much larger, deeper conversation about how we live in this radically remediated world in a way that, you know, that, that, that it feels as though kind of at the moment, it's almost, as you say, like sort of treating a patch of sand when you need to address uh, climate policy. Absolutely. And the problems, I mean, mis- and disinformation is exacerbated exponentially by digital technologies. There's no question about that. But mis- and disinformation existed in the world well before there was such a thing mm-hmm. as the Internet. I think that what happens often is there's a kind of, sort of hegemonic assumption within mainstream journalism that the audience is generally on the same page. Mm-hmm. And some audience members absolutely are. And for some audience members, fact-checking, debunking is helpful. It clarifies, it affirms that person's perspective in the world. They already don't believe in the deep state. So evidence that, you know, confirms that Mm -hmm. they absolutely accept it. But other audiences, they're speaking essentially in a different language. And it's those audiences that then take that information and do really mm-hmm. unexpected things. And, and why is this happening now? Is it the arrival of, of the share button or of these social platforms in general? Or is it, a, is it about, I mean, something you just said made me wonder about, has there been a change in the way our brains are wired that's causing this, us to deal with this now? I mean, it, all of this Kyle, makes me very Kyle, happy. Our bra- okay, fact, our brains have not been rewired, but, but, we might, but we might behave in a slightly different way. Well, but, but yeah. they're affected by the environment that we're living in. Sure, um, um, sure. It, it sort of makes but, me very happy that I have a three-and-a-half-year-old because I think I'm, it helps me in dealing with this because she spews misinformation all the time. All the time. Small, and, ch- small children, notorious 
disinform us. Yeah. Whitney, what do you think about, like, why, is there been a change that makes us more vulnerable to this, or is it purely a technology issue? Well, I mean, the technologies are really critical, I think, to that question. And and so I'm working on slash finishing a book that traces uh, some of this history. And instead of instead of placing the beginning of the problem, instead of placing it at the feet of Facebook or at the feet of social media, we actually cast our eyes back much further than that and talk about how the introduction of read-write media in the 1970s really is where the network crisis started to establish itself. So when you think about the climate crisis now, the climate crisis isn't five years old, right? It, It goes back a very long time. It's just that the effects weren't really visible. But the same thing with the with the network crisis, that in the 70s, you suddenly had more people able to kind of create their own spheres of media influence. And by the 70s already, there was a bifurcation in the kind of media that people were um, participating in, engaging with. You had a split already between the far right, especially evangelical Christians, who have always been brilliant at adopting new technologies to create network infrastructures. You could kind of create an alternative media ecosystem that marched alongside the mainstream media ecosystem, but those two ecosystems weren't really in conversation with each other, that if you weren't part of the far-right network, you weren't really aware of what was going on there because the networks hadn't fused. And, and what social media does is it takes a nascent problem and it, it connects everything, and it allows things to kick back and forth, accruing additional energy um, through amplification that unfolds in unexpected ways. So it's not just that light doesn't disinfect under those circumstances. Light, it sets things in place and it grows new things all because those networks are linked. And so what we're dealing with now, it's, it's we are living in a world where the network floodgates have totally been opened and our institutions weren't built for this. I mean, the two of you know a ton about this and are seeped in it. I just don't think that most news organizations in general, or but especially most journalists, have a clue of, of, of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Emily's frowning at me. Um, I, I think, to, well, so, so I think it's, an, it's a really interesting point because um, what we've got at the moment, which I think is not actually particularly healthy, is we have a shrinking field of professional people who are dealing in good faith um, real information on a daily basis with journalists and reporters. Um, and we have a sort of disinformation industry of people sort of telling or training or, or, or defining this Which stuff. is bigger than that field of journalists. Well, it's not bigger, but it's kind of, it's it's getting a lot of attention and, and kind of resources at the moment. And I think that... You don't the, think it the, has more resources? No. I mean, you know, it's still a small field. Um, but I do think that, um, though... Hmm, interesting. We I can discuss Facebook, that another. Well, yeah, Facebook, so Facebook in general, in but that I don't category. think they're just, they're not really not directing. No, they're not directing, but they're but they're enabling. To it. Yeah, so they're, and and they're, and they're sort of increasing their kind of defences against it, which are very binary. So it's moderation and it's fact checking. Um, but but there is a real problem here, which is you know kind of the, the the sort of skills and techniques of tracing where this stuff comes, understanding the kind of literature and the history that Whitney is talking about. For it to be really effective in a newsroom, you also need to combine it with domain expertise. For instance, let's take impeachment and Ukraine and Russia. Most people sort of stop at Ukraine and Russia. They don't really know the recent political history there. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, and unpicking that is domain expertise 
then finding out sort of you know where how those tropes are um, so, so it's almost like, you know, my background is as a media reporter, a media business reporter. My job will be totally different now. I would need mm. a lot more network analysis in my skill set. Um, I'd need a lot more computation. I'd need um, all sorts of things that just to interrogate this environment, mm. as Whitney says, because there's so much of it is interconnected. Now, if you think that, you know, media is everything. So if you want to layer that onto healthcare reporting, political reporting, mm. you know, local reporting, local government reporting. It's, you know, it's it, and, and, and then alongside that, you have an audience which is not really equipped to deal with it and an intermediation industry, um, the platforms, who have actively spent most of their existence denying that it was anything to do with them. So they just haven't built the internal policies or processes that would make this easier. Mm. Um, and, and so we're all sort of getting to grips with this at exactly the wrong moment, which is, if you like, after the implosion mm -hmm. um, rather than beforehand. Even though people like Whitney, people like myself, have been talking about this for a mm. long time, you know, kind of like until... Sort of, you know, you may be punched in the face, but you might not feel the pain until a little bit later. Yeah. So, 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 I think that like any kind of big sort of revolution, uh, you, you know, if you look at the industrial revolution in the nineteenth century, you had an intense period of disruption, um, which caused all sorts of havoc in the real world, which was then followed by, you know, kind of a century of sort of social policies to really sort of get to grips with markets and labor and capital moving around in the way in the way that it now did i think we have to go through that with information <laughs> it's exactly the same thing it's a, it's a more concentrated period but we haven't had any really major policy interventions in this field mm -hmm. at all um, we haven't had any major reform of the platforms. We have a media which is shrinking and losing its business model. And we haven't even sort of figured out how to shore that up. And at the same time, you have a readership. There's a great sort of interesting, tiny little kind of experiment in The Guardian um, this week, uh, which looked at the phone data of just six people. It's not research because it's only six people. There's a new sort of method for looking at what people were actually scrolling through. And it's very chaotic and how people, you know, people are much more likely to listen to a comedian that they like. You know, Trevor Noah is more influential than Walter Cronkite, all of that kind of thing. Everybody's getting to grips with the difference that this has created at the same time. It's so interesting, Whitney, that you that you bring in the climate crisis at the same time that we're talking about this. And, and the reckoning that, that Emily talks about, which is needed in information, is, has been long past due on climate too and is now is now happening. I mean, you see parallels between the two things? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and I think one of the most striking parallels is the difficulty in convincing people that they're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after Charlottesville that the reporters I would work with, they were starting to realize more and more that it, despite their best intentions, the effect of their reporting was to do PR work for the worst actors imaginable. And I don't, you know, I, I think that as time goes on, in my experience, more and more people seem to be open to that conversation. But it's a tough sell. Journalists, everyday people, educators, politicians, everyone contributes to, the, to this crisis even when their intentions are really good. And it's the same thing with the climate crisis, that even when we're not actively polluting, we still produce pollution. 
I think a lot of it is also to do with business models. You know, kind of the press were incentivized in a particular way, which I've always said was actually very unhealthy for good journalism. Um, and likewise, the platforms are built around a set of economic incentives, which are also counter that they work counter to, to all the things that um, Whitney you're talking about. So I think you know this is not just about changing behaviour. There's a lot of big, just like climate change, a lot of this is actually about you know the fossil fuels industry is a very powerful lobby. It's very rich. Until you change through regulation those flows of capital and the incentive structures both within journalism and within um, distribution and monetization, then it won't change. Absolutely. And that actually, so Elizabeth Warren, there was a, the Climate Forum a couple of, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, because I don't know what time means anymore, but <laughs> a month or two ago. Um, and what Elizabeth Warren said is that, you know, yeah, we should talk to people about don't buy plastic straws, but exactly that. We have right. to interfere in the incentive structures. We have to talk about regulation, that what we need is both of those things happening simultaneously. And I think to really push for essentially what would be a Green New Deal in terms of the network yeah. crisis. In order to do that, we have to convince people, we have to show them what the problem is. And it's not enough just to change sort of structural issues, because if people aren't going to change their behavior simultaneously, not, it doesn't work. So it really has to be across the board, top to bottom, everyday behavior, sort of structural change. It all needs to happen at once, and we need to do it like yesterday. And mm. that's what makes this question so concerning, both in terms of the network crisis and the climate crisis in embodied spaces. Yeah. Whitney and Emily, thank you so much for joining us. For those of you who are dying to hear more of, of this discussion, and I hope that there are a lot of you out there, Whitney and Emily will both be joining us next Tuesday at Columbia for a conference on disinformation, December 10th. You can find out more about that by going to cjr.org and also find their pieces from the latest print issue of the Columbia Journalism Review, which is all about disinformation. Also related to this is an effort that CJR has been running called Covering Climate Now, which is aimed at getting news outlets from around the world to do a better job on climate coverage. You can also read about that. So lots to talk about. Hope to see you next Tuesday. Otherwise, see you next week on The Kicker. 